So we'll be looking at, uh, is this loud, too loud, loud enough? Fine? Okay. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 9 to 21, the end of chapter 12. Could I get any, um, Josh, would you like to read? Should have said something beforehand, but put you on the spot. Nine, or excuse me, twelve, nine to twenty-one. And then once you're done, if you wouldn't mind coming up here and giving your thoughts. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, twelve, uh, chapter twelve, nine to twenty-one. Thank you. So, again, in chapter 12, we see a transition from the first 11 chapters to chapter 12. Paul's really dealing with uh, Christian living now at this point. And we've even seen a breakdown in the first two verses that we talked about two weeks ago, transforming our minds to be more like Christ. And then last week, we dealt more with the spiritual gifts that God has given to each and every one of us. We have been given, each of us, if you're a Christian, a measure of faith. So a proper portion of faith to fulfill the gift and gifts that you have been given. And I did not mention this last week, but if you want further reading on gifts, the the gifts of the Spirit that have been given to the believer, this is not an all-encompassing list from verses 3 to 8. Uh, there's further reading in 1 Corinthians 12 and also Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Those, of course, were both written by Paul. And he goes into further detail about the gifts that the Holy Spirit's given to edify the church of Jesus Christ. So if you have any interest in that, I would encourage you to go and read that on your own sometime this week. But verses 9 to 21 really is dealing more with Christian living, and how we interact with one another, and how we also interact with the world. Verse 9, we see here, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So verse 9, Paul transitions more to personal in nature. It is the most important thing that we do and have as Christians, that is love even more so than any gift that we've been given by the Spirit. And we see that 
Paul reminds us of that in 1 Corinthians 13, which people often take that passage out of context, where in chapter 12, as I just said, Paul lists all the gifts of the Spirit that have been given to us, but he says this in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And we've probably been to a lot of weddings where we've heard this chapter read about love, and there's nothing wrong with it, but Paul is specifically talking about the gifts that the church has. And if we don't have love for one another, for Christ, for the lost world, then the gifts we've been given really are completely useless. So that's what he's beginning here. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, what I struggle with, I think, as a Westerner, especially in the 21st century, is I think love has been so taken out of context in our culture. Every time we hear the word love, you know, it's used almost in a perverse way. Love for the same sex or this transgenderism nonsense across the board. And really, we've taken love completely out of its context. We've taken love for people, and I think we've construed it for a love of sin, especially in our own culture. And I think we have oftentimes a negative view of love, at least in my, in my circumstance. Whenever I hear the word, I kind of get like a, a sick feeling or something because it's been taken so far out of context, uh, context. It's been a love for sin. That's how Satan's construed it in our culture. And it appears it's even seeped into the church in a lot of circumstances with a lot of these you know, foreign doctrines that are being introduced. But the word love here is actually a true word that we are supposed to have for one another. What is love? It's love for the brethren. Love for the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We love the people of Christ. Why? Because of Christ. Because of what he's done for us on the cross. First Peter, or excuse me, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 22, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That's a mark of a Christian, to love one another. And that's often difficult. Why is that difficult? It's because the church is full of sinners. And how many times do we struggle with loving one another? And notice also in Galatians, won't take time necessarily to read the whole thing, but we're given the fruits of the Spirit. And what is the first thing that is mentioned in Galatians 5, 22? But the fruit of the Spirit is this, love. I don't know if it was a coincidence. I don't know if it was through inspiration of the Holy Spirit that that was the first one mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit that we are supposed to have as believers. But love. Love for Christ and love for the brothers and sisters in the church. So let love, and then be without hypocrisy. Let it be without hypocrisy. Love should not be hypocritical, meaning our love for others shouldn't be superficial or just because we have to. So the love that we have for each other in the church should not just be at a surface level. It's not because we're commanded to, but it should be genuine. Superficial just means kind of fake. It means pseudo, not genuine. Our love for the brothers 
and sisters, as Paul is saying, it should be without hypocrisy. And I'm sure you're probably familiar, but the word in Greek for uh, hypocrisy, like in, in Greek times, it was a mask. It was a mask that you would put on to disguise yourself as someone else. We're not supposed to disguise our feelings, our true feelings for the brethren. It should be genuine love. It should be deep-seated love for the brethren and also the lost world. And if you say, oh, I struggle with it, I can't love my brothers and sisters, well, that would say then you have not transformed your mind. You have not renewed your mind in the first one to two verses of the chapter are not applicable to you. That's good proof that you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Let love, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And we're really given this introduction here, as we'll see in the rest of the chapter, of evil and abhorring what it brings about. That which is opposed to God. That was the simplest definition I could think of of evil. That which is opposed to, the, to God, the destructive ways of the world, the ways in which we, as Christians, used to be. Ephesians 4, 20-23, Paul says this, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that be renewed in the spirit of your mind. If we are renewing our minds, we are supposed to abhor what is evil. And again, to bring it to a cultural context, I think it's getting more and more difficult for us to abhor that which is evil. We see more and more evil introduced to us, around us, in a cultural context. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, Paul says this, But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Again, how are we sucked into this in the common culture? We have been subliminally, not openly, but discreetly, beat down and rolled over by the mainstream, and we're really not shocked by evil anymore. So here's a test for your conscience. I would say this for our lives as Christians and the, acts, the stuff we have access to. Here's a test for your conscience to abhor that which is evil around you. Would you watch, would you say, would you go do what you're going to do if Christ was standing right next to you. From the shows that we watch, from the things that we say, if we are to, as Paul commands us through the Holy Spirit, abhor what is evil, would we do the things that we do if Christ was sitting next to us? Now, we have the Holy Spirit tabernacling inside of us, so the presence of God is with us, but oftentimes I think we don't realize it. But if Christ was next to us, would we be abhorring the evil that we're supposed to be abhorring? And I think that's a test for each and every one of us in here. With the things that we watch, the things that we do, and the things that we have access to. So I can't give you a complete list, but that's for you to decide for yourself. How are you abhorring evil in the 21st century? Verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love... In honor, giving preference to one another. 
Now Paul turns to Christian conduct with other Christians. And we see this word here, be kindly affectionate to one another. Affectionate can also mean devoted. And Strong's defines it as fond of natural relatives. So oftentimes as we have affection for our natural relatives, for our brothers and our sisters and our parents, aunt and uncles, etc., that is the affection, the devotion that we're supposed to show one another in the body of Christ. And he continues in verse 11, "...not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord." Not lagging in zeal or energy regarding our Christian living. It's difficult. It's difficult to live as Christians in the world that we do. And we're not set apart. It was difficult to live as a Christian in 1600s England, in 8th century Jerusalem, in the 1st century Jerusalem. It was difficult to live as a Christian. But we cannot be lagging in our zeal or our energy for Christ. MacArthur says here in verse 11, this word fervent... Fervent in spirit, MacArthur said it's to not boil over. He uses like a steam engine using the necessary amount of heat to produce the necessary amount of energy to get the work done. Sounds pretty sensical to me. Fervent in spirit, using the amount of energy and zeal that is proper for our Christian living. Not too much in some cases, not too little in others. Finding the happy medium. And then verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. And we're going a little quick here because I want to make sure I finish the chapter. But just picking a couple verse or a couple words here, hope. We see this word rejoicing in hope. I can't remember who said it. I was listening to someone a couple, probably a couple months ago, and oftentimes you get the question, you ask, are you, half, are you a glass half full or half empty? Meaning, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? And he said something I thought was pretty profound. He said, I'm not an optimist because I'm a Christian. I'm hopeful. I think oftentimes optimism kind of has a humanistic tendency. Oh, you know, humans will work it out in the end. And I thought it was kind of profound. No, I'm hopeful. Because we as Christians rejoice in the hope that we have, that no matter what happens, we have the hope of the second coming and the glorious day of the resurrection. So rejoice in the hope of the future. Not in humanistic terms, but in the terms that we as Christians have in the coming of Christ in that future day. Patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Just briefly, when in tribulation, whether it be physical, mental, or spiritual, continuing steadfastly in prayer and enter the holy presence of God. And then verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Giving to others, showing kindness and openness to those of the faith. Opening our homes, giving our time and resources to them, As the word may be rendered, that is this word uh, distributing or giving or given to hospitality, we see this, it means to hunt after or to pursue. And we're given kind of an example of this in Genesis 18, 1 and 2, and then 19, 1 and 2, 
of Abraham and Lot. And if you remember, Lot was in Sodom. He was one of the chief men of the city of Sodom, and the angels visited him. And what did Lot do? As he went to the town square where the angels were, he sought them out for hospitality purposes and then brought them back into his home. So we as Christians are supposed to seek out opportunities for hospitality to show kindness to others concerning this duty of accommodating strangers or other people, I would say, outside of our immediate family. That's a mark of a Christian, showing hospitality. Interestingly enough, in Ezekiel 16.49, one of the condemnations that Ezekiel recalls against Sodom and Gomorrah was this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant in food and careless in ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Now, if you recall, there are some people in the modern day that say Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they weren't hospitable. But we know from the New and Old Testament that the main reason they were destroyed is from their perversity and what they wanted to do to the strangers, what they wanted to do to the angels that were in Lot's house. But one of the condemnations against them was their inhospitable nature against those of the outside world. So we as Christians, let that not be against us. So before I continue, anyone have any comments or questions or anything to add? Yes, Becky. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll see that here as we get down. Um, really, I think Paul addresses that issue in further detail. But yes, very much so. Anything else? All right, well, if you have anything else to add, just raise your hand and shout it out. Um, I'm going to skip verse 14 because I don't want to be redundant as we get further on. I'm going to lump verse 14 and move it down uh, to verse 17. So we'll address 14 here in a minute. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I think this is being uh, compassionate, being tender, and caring for those who are rejoicing, but also those who are weeping. And I think a great example of this is in John eleven thirty seven, the famous story of Lazarus. Always a remarkable story in the case of what Jesus did with Lazarus. We see eleven thirty seven. if you remember, as Mary had come to Jesus and said, Lord, Lazarus needs to be healed. And then she said, it's too late, he's already dead. And Jesus stalls for three days, three, three or four days before he goes to Lazarus' tomb. And Christ knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to bring Lazarus from the tomb. But what do we see here? 
John 11, excuse me, 35, not 37. The shortest verse in the Bible. Then he said to them, Lord, come and see. And it says, Jesus wept. He had compassion on Mary and the other family members of Lazarus. Jesus wept with them. He mourned with them over the death of Lazarus. And interestingly enough, in verse 36, it said, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. In verse 37, And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And we know exactly how it happened. But the context here is that Jesus wept, had compassion upon these people in this tragic circumstance, regardless of what he was going to do. So we as Christians are supposed to rejoice, not in a superficial, not in a jealous manner, but in a true, authentic way with other believers when there is time for rejoicing. And also, as we've had at Bible Chapel plenty of times before, we're supposed to weep with those who weep and reach out to them in times of loss and genuine help. And really, I think through this whole entire passage, it's just being genuine with people. It's showing compassion and help and love to people in time of need. We are the body of Christ. So I would say the illustration that Paul gave in verses 3 to 8, if we're the body of Christ, so the illustration stands where if the nose hurts, the hand also feels it. If one member is joyful, then all the other members should also rejoice with them. If we're the body, the body's connected. If the nose hurts, then the rest of the body is going to feel it in terms. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Be of the same mind, that is, regardless of who the person is. Don't show favoritism. I don't think this means that every person must be your best friend. That's not what this is saying, but it's to show that you're still brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think we see this in fine detail in the life of Christ, is he had plenty of associates around him. He had Mary and Lazarus and others, but then he had the 12 disciples who were the inner circle. They were his good friends. But then more remarkably is he had three, Peter, James, and John, that had even greater access to the things of Christ. And then even more profound is his relationship with John, who at the Last Supper, John was laying on the breast of Christ. So we see this. It does not mean every person is your best friend in the household of God. But it means that we are supposed to be of the same mind towards one another, not showing favoritism just because of who someone is or the money they have or the intellect that they have, but realizing that we're all one in Christ. And then don't set your mind on high things. This is often difficult to do, but meaning recognize your station, recognize your abilities, the gifts, and use them at the level you are given to use them at. Recognize what you have been given and humbly do what you have been given to do. It does not mean that every pastor has the capability or the wherewithal to preach at a church of 10,000 people. Maybe your lot in life is to preach at a church of 50 people. Recognize your talents and your abilities and do them. And finally, associate with the humble. 
You can't have ambition or you can't have pride. Uh, Proverbs 3, 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. Do not be pompous or arrogant in your thoughts. Here is an idea. You may be wrong. You may be wrong. So just some practical lessons I think Paul has given the church of Rome and hence to us in the conduct of our Christian living. Have compassion, have love for the people of God. And before I finish up here, anyone have any further comments or questions to add? Yes, Tom. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think we're going to see that here as we finish up this, you know, uh, chapter, not returning evil for evil. He, he just said, if I am reiterating it properly, Tom, that, you know, if someone wrongs you, it's difficult to be loving towards them. Yeah. 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 It's showing compassion. He's talking about when they had a fire and someone lost their son. Showing compassion to them, you know, when they're trying to get back into the swing of things. So, yeah, good example. Thank you. Yep. Exactly. Showing compassion. Showing compassion. All right. Uh, let me re- read real quick here, verse 14. The last particular portion, I would say, is pretty much all lumped together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Admittedly, this portion is difficult. Is it saying we're supposed to bless the wicked who persecute us? I think so. But I think that's just a surface-level reading of it. So let's dig a little deeper. This is counter to our nature. Meaning the natural man's reaction is to vindicate himself and get revenge. Can anyone think real quickly of the, in Genesis, what's a famous example of someone boasting and proclaiming of their revenge? First couple chapters of Genesis. Anyone remember Lamech? The descendant of Cain? He said this, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So we see this here, this story of revenge. It's not in our place as Christians to seek revenge, and it's actually condemned in the Old Testament, given uh, here by Moses in Genesis. So what is the mark of a Christian? It's Christ. What did Christ do when he was on the cross? He said, Father, in Luke 
27, I, I can't remember exactly, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's not easy to do. Peter recounts this in 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I probably wouldn't have to say anything more after that. If Christ suffered all of those things and did not revile in return, but trusted God for the outcome, how much more us sinners who are deserving of the wrath, how much more should we trust the Lord in times of persecution, trial, and tribulation? Again, I'm not saying it's easy to do, but it's a commandment for us to do. Albert Barnes says, Do not be provoked to anger or to curse by any injury, persecution, or reviling. This is one of the most severe and difficult duties of the Christian religion, and it is a duty which, with nothing else but religion, will enable him to perform. Certainly not easy. It's counter to the natural man that's inside of us. In verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. And this section deals in a large part to the way Christians react to the outside hostile world. So again, Paul switches over a little bit. We're dealing with the outside world now and how we're supposed to respond. Our life should be a pursuit of good regardless of the situation. If your mind is in Christ being transformed, this, though not easy, should be a natural outcome of it. Again, I'm stressing the importance. It is not easy to do. In fact, as Christians, we often respond in a reviling way. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. And then having regard or pursuing, that word also pursuing good things in the sight of all men. Strong's defines this as looking out beforehand, actively by the way of maintenance for others, looking out or pursuing good with all men. This isn't just a reactionary thing we're supposed to do. This is an active thing that we're supposed to pursue with all men, regardless if they're Christians or non-Christians. Verse, six, uh, verse 18, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And again, Paul is not arguing here for perfection and perpetual peace in every circumstance, which we know in a fallen world is not possible. But as much as it is upon us, we are supposed to be at peace with all men. It doesn't mean we're supposed to sacrifice God's principles, God's holiness, to be at peace, as we often see in certain circumstances. We're not supposed to compromise on doctrines such as justification by faith alone, so that we can become one church again with the Catholic Church. No. There are times where you have to butt up with, one, uh, with someone else. You have to go toe-to-toe. There's going to be times where there's not going to be peace, especially when it's dealing with the principles of God and of things that pertain to our salvation. But in everything else, as much as possible in us, we're supposed to be at peace 
with all men. Hebrews 12.14, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification with which no one will see the Lord. And then let me just go ahead and lump here verses 19 and 21 together. Similar to what has been said already by Paul, now he's just going to give some Old Testament examples that he took from Deuteronomy. Paul takes this idea, let me read it real quick here, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul takes this idea from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. So Paul pulls excerpts from the Old Testament to prove his point here that this isn't some new doctrine, but that this has been around since the time of the Pentateuch. Let me read uh, Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4, the opening portion of this song of Moses. Listen here, just uh, intently. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. So, setting it up, Moses is saying God is completely just, he's completely faithful, and he's without injustice. So then, inserting in the context of our passage here, if God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, what's the conclusion? That God will deal out perfect vengeance, and he will repay perfectly at his appointed time. Let us rest upon that. God is without injustice. He is just. He will repay. We don't have to worry about it. Again, this is not easy whatsoever. But it's what we're commanded to do. And we'll see, beginning in verse 13 here, is that this isn't necessarily even pertaining to the day of judgment, which God will, of course, make everything right. But also, we'll see, as actually Gary uh, Rains is teaching next week, he'll start chapter 13, But one of the ways God deals with vengeance is, I know it's kind of hard to believe when we look at it, but it's through the authority of the law and of government. It's the government does not wield the sword in vain. And one of the the ways God deals out his vengeance is through the judicial system, is through the courts. You see this organization here in the New and the Old Testament. Again, it's not perfect. There's plenty of people that uh, get off with crimes that they should, you know, be thrown in jail for, to say it lightly. And there's plenty of people that are put in jail that should be out. But the principle still stands. God uses government and other uh, bodily authorities to deal out his vengeance and justice. And it's not our place. It's not our place. Oftentimes, when we want to have a vendetta, when we want to have revenge and bring about our own justice, it's oftentimes in a spirit of anger. And we're not in a right state of mind. And it's difficult to deliver justice when we're not in the right state of mind. So God has given other authorities and ultimately the day of judgment to come about and bring about his justice. And again, this is surface level. We could go a a lot deeper and it's not easy stuff. If you have anything to add, certainly uh, come say to me afterwards. But um, before I give my concluding thoughts, anyone have any comments or questions? Yes, Dad.
Yeah. Yeah. I, that is a pretty entertaining story in the Old Testament. But I think uh, a curse here, if, I've, if I understood it correctly, um, we're not supposed to uh, wish ill will upon someone in the name of the Lord. Um, for example, when, and I, don't, I, I can't uh, remember the specific passage in the Gospels, but when the uh, maybe it was Matthew, uh, Matthew 10 that we read last week, Sunday night, where the city had rejected Christ and James and John wanted to bring fiery hail out of the sky and consume the city. That's not the proper spirit that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have compassion upon those people as Christ did. So again, there's a whole, whole list of things that we could go through. We don't have the time. But uh, just in conclusion, we read verse 21, or excuse me, the end of verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. I always thought that it was heaping coals of fire of hell upon his head. That's how I interpret it. Maybe I was the only one that interpreted it incorrectly. But I was corrected this week. It's really heaping coals upon their head. That was a form of humiliation in the times of Paul, uh, where someone would put a tray on top of their head and they'd have coals that they would put heap upon their head. It was a sign of contrition, of humiliation, saying that they had been wrong. And that's what this is saying here, is that if we give place to the wrath of God and we do good to those who have done evil against us, hopefully it's going to throw heap coals of contrition and repentance upon their head. So that's the example that we're given here. Um, We're out of time, but if you have any other further comments or questions, see me afterwards. And like I said, Gary is uh, kind enough to teach next week, so make sure you're here for that. And... uh, We'll continue on in Romans. So thank you. Thank you for your attention.